listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, June 1st, 2019. Upcoming events. The Strategic Life Alignment Seminar. Struggling to find meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life? The Strategic Life Alignment Seminar will equip you with tools for discerning your divinely ordained life purpose. For more information or to purchase a recording of this training, please visit strategieswork.com. The Strategic Life Alignment Alumni Event. The 2019 Alumni Event will be held in the summer of 2019. The topic will be Blocks to Running Your Race. Recordings of all seven alumni events are available in the Strategies at Work store at strategieswork.com. The Seminar Executional Excellence. This training was held last month. Recordings are available on the website. These are challenging economic times. There is much fear in the world. Now more than ever, people need to understand the power of building their lives on Christ. Only faith in Christ can provide sustained victory over fear. If you need help learning how to walk with Christ, Strategies at Work has consultants in various parts of the world. Please see the website, strategieswork.com, for contact information. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Life Lessons from Tiger, a teaching from Acts 1. Well, good morning and welcome to this time together. We're going to begin a study of the book of Acts. And this first section, I'm going to talk mainly about the first three verses and really overview of the book. Uh, I've titled this particular lesson, The Beginning of the New Testament Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word that uh, is commonly translated church. Uh, there's a real disconnect, though, between the idea of ecclesia as presented in the New Testament and the idea of church today. Many times church today is viewed as a building although many people recognize it's technically not a building. They still use it that way. But in the uh, New Testament times, the word ecclesia was never used to refer to a building. It was always used to refer to a group of people who had been called out by people in authority to render some decision about some question or issue in the culture. So Jesus chose that particular word to talk about building his ecclesia. And so we want to start today considering uh, the work of Christ after his ascension. And this is the establishment and the beginning of the New Testament ecclesia. So like every human, Jesus was born into a historical context. This context includes his date and place of birth, heritage, virgin birth, parents, gender, talents and personality, vocational calling, favor, ultimate work and his ultimate life work, and his legacy, which is what happened after he was gone. All of these enabled him to play his role in the meta-narrative that has been in progress since the fall of man recorded in Genesis 3 and culminates in the final judgment for the sin of man in Revelation 20. Jesus played the unique role of living sinlessly and then sacrificing his life as a ransom for many. And this is something that uh, we we benefit greatly from because he, through his sinlessness, has been able to impute that sinlessness to us positionally so we have right standing with God. In the process of living his life, Jesus executed his role in the meta narrative, the great story of history, 
And we all have a role in the meta narrative. The challenge is seeing that role and being able to live it like Jesus did. Among many outstanding aspects of his life, there are two similar components that really have been the, the prominent components of his life. First, his, the cross and his claim that what he would be doing in the future, particularly after he was gone, was building his ecclesia. Now, clearly what he did while he was here was set in place the pieces that needed to be put in place for that ecclesia to be built. The cross was his substitutionary atonement on behalf of the ecclesia. That is, his destiny, his most significant work while here on earth. Then based on this work, Jesus built his ecclesia, which was his legacy, the work that transcended his life on earth. The ecclesia are those called out by God to project his rule and reign. The individual members of the ecclesia are reconciled to God by the work of Jesus on the cross and in totality comprise the people of God, his called out agents who execute his rule on earth. Jesus revealed both his seminal work and legacy to his disciples in a conversation about his identity in these words. This is Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 21. He, Jesus is talking here. He says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ. The word Messiah is a translation of the word Christos, which we, we translate normally Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And the word Peter is Petros, which means like a stone, a small rock. And on this rock, and this word is Petra, which refers to a large stone, obviously a reference to the identity of Christ as the son of the most high God. Based on that identity, Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you, and here he's talking about his apostles and disciples, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, which means that the binding is first in heaven and then it's conveyed through us here on earth. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven, the same thing there. This binding and loosing begins in, with the Lord in heaven and is expressed through us. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. The Gospel of Luke is a record of Jesus's life and work on earth. His destiny was accomplished, which included preparation for his legacy. Building his ecclesia was his legacy. The book of Acts is the record of his legacy, the work of establishing and building his ecclesia. The identity of Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, who would restore Israel was the basis for both his work in, <clears throat> during this time on earth and afterwards. The challenge was that his followers did not understand this well. They focused on a literal restoration of the kingdom to Israel without understanding that spiritual restoration would precede it. Nor did they understand the scope of God's plan. 
Even after his resurrection, his disciples were still not clear on this point, as we'll see in Acts 1 6, the next at the next lesson. This book, commonly known as the Acts of the Apostles, was a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Therefore, understanding the life of Christ is a predicate for understanding the Acts of the Apostles. Now, some background that we need to approach the book of Acts is an understanding of the Old Testament, and specifically the lesson of total depravity. Throughout Jesus's life and afterwards, his disciples struggled to understand who he really was, even though they confessed it well, you know, you can confess it with your head and not really know it with your heart. And they struggled with their heart. You know, while he was alive, they wanted to know what all this really meant, and they really couldn't quite see it. The reason for this lack of clarity by the apostles was they didn't understand a major lesson of the old covenant, the revelation of total depravity. Total depravity meant that all of mankind's faculties, his mind, his will, and his emotions are impacted by sin. Mankind is therefore irresistibly biased to sin. This means that mankind does not have free will. Mankind makes what appears to be choices. It looks like we have some freedoms, but in the ultimate end, our freedom is very, very limited. There are a lot of things we can do nothing about. We can't change when we're born, who our parents are. We can't change the fact that we need food and water. We can't change the fact that we cannot go back in time, or we can't just be instantly translated into some different place in space, like go to the moon. We can't do those things. We are limited. The Apostle Paul explained this in Romans chapter 1 through 3, particularly the focus on our bias to sin. But at the, at the time of the foundation of Ecclesia recorded in Acts, there was little understanding of the depths of this. There was some understanding, but they were still focused on all that needed to happen was Jesus needed to kick out the Romans and reestablish you know, the Davidic kingship in, in Israel and everything would be fine. That was not what Jesus was about. And we'll see more on that as we go on through chapter one next time. The Abrahamic promise was the unconditional promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and is really the foundational promise for all of scripture, because this is God's redemptive plan, how he will go about redeeming mankind from total depravity. We have to understand the scripture tells us that God has promised a blessing to Abraham, and that blessing will be to all peoples on earth. Now, the Apostle Paul gave us an understanding of that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. And there he explained this. He said, now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel of ahead of time to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, saying specifically, all the nations will be blessed through you. Paul is connecting the gospel of the grace of Christ to the Abrahamic promise of Genesis 12. This is what the apostles did not understand initially. They came to understand that, and much of the book of Acts is a unfolding of their progressive understanding, the progressive illumination of that truth to them, and their progressive ability to begin to live and walk in that truth. So that's really what this book is all about. It's establishing the ecclesia and the unfolding you know, 
the building of that ecclesia, and that required clarity on the Old Testament, clarity on the gospel, clarity on depravity, clarity on the work of Christ out to redeem us from total depravity, to enable us to be the ecclesia. So that's the backdrop here that you have to get clear on, or you will probably misunderstand this book. Now, another thing you have to recognize about the book of Acts is it's a transitional book. You know, as a transitional book, that means that there will be some unique things about it. Acts is a continuation of Luke's gospel, according uh, account to Theophilus. Now, we don't know hardly anything about Theophilus. The, the name Theophilus means friend of God. That's pretty much all we know. And there's some that would claim it's a fictitious person. I, I don't know why, on what basis they would make that claim, because it certainly appears that the writer of the Gospel of, of Luke and the, and the Acts of the Apostle appear to be the same person. And it appears to be someone like Luke who was very orderly. And it appears he was writing a real account to a real person. So we have the introduction to the book of Luke in verses 1 through 4, chapter 1, which says this. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which we have, you have been instructed. And then the opening words of the book of Acts, the first three verses here, I wrote the first narrative, which seems to clearly be re referring back to the Gospel of Luke. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. This is a reference to what Jesus' life on earth while he was, you know, before the cross, before the ascension, before the resurrection. This is his life on earth. All that he began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. That's his ascension. And after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after he had suffered also, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. And that word for proof there means something that's surely known, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So there's a clear revelation, a clear testimony here that connects these two works together, the Acts and Luke. It's a continuation. And I'm going to say to you that Luke is, a re is basically a testimony of the identity of Christ and the destiny of Christ while he was incarnated. And Acts is now the fulfillment of the legacy of Christ as a result of his incarnation. So I think that's a proper way of how to understand that. Acts is a record of how Jesus established and initially built his ecclesia during his lifespan, during the lifespan of the original 12 apostles. In other words, it only covers the lifespan of the original 12, and not totally, but that is pretty much the lifespan of the epistle. The ecclesia was a major paradigm shift for the apostles. They didn't really get that, even though they would have been very well aware that Israel was called the ecclesia in the Old Testament. If you look at the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia is used in reference to Israel there. So they would have been familiar with the term in that context. 
But in the terms of this new context, because they didn't understand the Old Testament well enough, they didn't understand Christ well enough, they didn't really understand the gospel initially well enough, these things have to be unfolded. And the development of the understanding of the, of the Old Testament, which, as you know, is called the graphe, that the, means the writings, this is how they referred to it. We translate the graphe, the Old Testament, when we translate it into English. But the Greek word is hey graphe, that is the writings. And so the understanding of that is now has to be filtered through the lens of Christ, who he was, his identity, why he came, his purpose and destiny. And as you begin to see the graphe through the lens of Christ, you begin to see more profoundly the meta narrative, the purpose of God, what the ecclesia is all about, and what God is going to do to the culmination of time. Now, just a word about the writer, real quickly. Uh, the writer here is Luke, we believe. There's no explicit claim that Luke makes to be the writer of either of these works. But historically, the church has viewed this to be Luke. They presume that. Luke's name is only mentioned three times in Scripture, and it's always by the Apostle Paul. It's in Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Philemon 1.24. And in Colossians 4.14, Luke is specifically referred to as a physician. So that's probably one of the reasons the church believed that Luke wrote this epistle, because the presumption is that a physician would write an orderly account as is claimed by the writer of Luke in the first few verses of that epistle. So this is the background here that Luke was apparently a, a disciple of the apostle Paul who accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys, as you will see as we go through this, this uh, book of uh, the Acts of the Apostles, but he wasn't always present, or if he was, he didn't always write as if he was present. So the, the fact that Luke is generally regarded to be the traditional writer is to some degree speculation, but there's no really real reason that I can see to doubt it. Now, let me give you a little outline of the book that might be helpful to you as you frame things. The first chapter of the book of Acts is basically from the ascension of Christ to Pentecost. Now, that is, the ascension happens in the first chapter. Of course, we have some verses before the ascension, some conversation before the ascension, then the ascension, and then we have everything being prepared for Pentecost. That's the first chapter. Chapter two is Pentecost, which is now the founding event of the ecclesia. Chapters three through seven are really all about the first ecclesia. If you were Baptist, this would be the first church. Uh, this is all the growth pains and uh, things that happened during those times, even down to the first martyrdom. Chapters 8 through 12 are the expansion of the ecclesia by virtue of persecution. You'll see how persecution was used to accomplish the purpose of God here in geographical and ethnic expansion of the ecclesia. Verses, uh, chapters 13 and 14 record Paul's first missionary journey to further expand the ecclesia. Chapter 15 is the first church council, where now the understanding of the gospel, which is at a heart of the identity of the ecclesia is hammered out. And you'll see even when we go through there, their understanding of the gospel is not even as robust as Paul's understanding as he expresses in the book of Galatians. And then you're gonna see in verses 16 through 18, and these are rough uh, 
outlines here. This that you know that I'm not getting down to the exact verses, but just roughly those three chapters there cover his second missionary journey, and then again to expand the ecclesia, encourage the ecclesia, and then chapters 19 and 20 are the third missionary journey. Again, maturing the ecclesia. There's a lot of time spent in Ephesus here, and Paul is trying to go deeper. Paul is not just after numbers, quantity. He's after quality. And you'll see that here, not only in Acts, but you'll also see it as you read his epistles, like the book of Colossians and the book of Galatians. Very clearly, he is after depth in disciples, which is something largely missing from our thinking today. Then Acts, is, uh, Acts 21 through 23, Paul journeys to Jerusalem. And then 24 through 26, he's on trial, first in Jerusalem, then Caesarea. And then finally in chapters 27, 28, is his journey to Rome in his final days of encouraging the ecclesia. Everything in this book is about the ecclesia, building and establishing and developing and growing and expanding the ecclesia. Now, let me give you a little hermeneutical note before I do an application here. Uh, this is the importance of the principle of, be, of descriptive versus prescriptive. As a transitional book, the issue of hermeneutics must be considered. A transition time is a time of change. One would expect that there may be events that facilitate change that are not part of the ongoing practices. For example, in the process of starting any organization, there's always a startup phase, a one-time startup phase. Now, during this phase, the formation documents are prepared and basic infrastructure structure is established. These are one-time events. They don't continue. They might get adjusted in time, but you never go back to these formative points of documentation and basic infrastructure. So it was with Jesus's work of building the ecclesia. There were formation documents, the Old Testament, had to be developed, had to be understood in light of the New Testament writings. The apostles had to articulate what, what it meant for Christ to be incarnated, what, his, what theologically happened, who he was, and what this would mean not only for them, but for the future. So this was really, really formative time. So the whole book is a formative book in which the documents are being prepared and the infrastructure is being established. Part of this ongoing understanding was the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Ecclesia. This is something they had no concept of, even though clearly you're gonna see as Paul develops this and as other writers develop it, they connect very clearly this inclusion to Genesis chapter 12, verse three. This meant that the gospel of the grace of Christ was to be promulgated to all ethnic groups. Now today we say all nations, but that's really not what the text says. It's all ethnic groups, which was the connection point for the discipleship mandate with Christ's legacy of building his ecclesia. Today, we have this huge emphasis on what we call the Great Commission. And there are many institutions and organizations and local communities of believers that this is the big deal. And I think they have really misunderstood what we call the Great Commission. It's really the discipleship mandate, and I'm just going to read it to you. I know most of you will know it, but just remind you of what it says and try to help you understand how the church has historically seen it and see how and challenge us to think that maybe today we're not seeing it quite correctly. So this is what Matthew records beginning in verse 16 of chapter 28. 
and this is the CSB version. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee because Jesus told them to go there, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them, and they saw him. They worshiped him, but some doubted. That's very interesting. We don't have time to get off on that, but it's interesting that Jesus would have apostles here that didn't fully believe him. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority, that word authority is the word exousia. Exousia in the Greek language means power of choice. All power of choice has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all ethnic groups. Now it says nations here in CSB, but that's I think that's a weak translation. I think it's make disciples of all ethnic groups. And please note, it doesn't say make converts. It says make disciples. You can make a convert by someone just making a profession of faith, and you can say they're a convert. But that didn't make them a disciple. What makes them a disciple is they grow up in Christ. A disciple is a disciplined learner in Christ. We're supposed to make disciplined learners, not just supposed converts. And this is where we're really off base, I think, today. And historically, the church would criticize us if we were to go to take our paradigm and take it to the early church today of the first 300 years and say, what do you think? I think they would say, you got what you call the Great Commission all wrong. And I will read you that in a second. The early church understood the discipleship mandate to be prescriptive for the original 12 apostles and fulfilled by them. Now, please hear that prescriptive for the original 12, not for the church at large. They believe that that mandate was fulfilled by them. Now, they could learn from that, and they could, they did learn from that. They saw value in that text and understanding better the Trinity, guidance for baptism, and understanding something in the process of discipleship and realizing that, that making a profession of faith was not adequate for discipleship. You had to grow up in it. A true Christian would grow, just like when a baby's born, if they're truly alive, they will grow. If someone has been truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they will grow, and we're here to help them grow, just like parents help a baby grow. Now, let me read to you a little quote out of the, uh, out of the book by Alan Kreider on the patient ferment of the early church, and this is how the early Christians saw uh, the Great Commission. It said the early Christian preachers did not appeal to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20 to inspire their members to make disciples of all nations. They assume that the apostles, that's Jesus 11 plus Paul, had done this in the church's earliest years and that it had already been fulfilled in the church's global expansion. When writers referred to Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that text, it was the buttress of the doctrine of the Trinity and to address the issue of baptism, not to inspire missionary activity. This is what a church historian says, that his study of the, church, or the early documents of the local churches in the first 300 years reveals. This is how they saw it. So this illustrates a principle for us that we need to understand. When reading any text, one must discern if it is simply descriptive or also prescriptive. We've taken this great commission and said it's prescriptive for us today. The early church says, no, it was only prescriptive for the first original 12 apostles, and they did it. 
It's simply descriptive for us today. It describes what happened and what they were charged to do. And this was part of the transition time and transitional events. These are events that are only needed as part of the startup process, may, may be primarily descriptive, but some of these events can also be prescriptive as well. And so we have to distinguish what are descriptive and what are also prescriptive. So that's the challenge for us today. So an example of this is, uh, is for example, uh, you see the communal living idea that was practiced by the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, this, is, this is taught, and there are many people that have claimed because they taught it, uh, you know, it must be a prescription for us today. But if you use the principle of comparing scripture to scripture, and you start looking in other parts of scripture and say, do I find support for the idea of communal living and any other texts of scripture, you're going to find there's not any support for that. On the other hand, in Acts chapter 6, which was still part of the time of developing this first church, the church had a problem, a chaotic problem. And the way that they put order, and kingdom work is always bringing order out of chaos, the way they brought kingdom order to their local you know, ecclesia was they used the C4 principle to identify the people that were called to take care of the disorder. So there you have the C4 principle. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Well, using the principle of comparing with scripture with scripture, we find that principle is used in many places in scripture to bring order out of chaos, to recognize who's supposed to do some work assignment. And so because of its wide use in scripture, we take the C4 principle as prescriptive of the, for the ecclesia, not simply a description of something that happened during the transition phase. So this is, uh, this is important that we get this. If we don't understand this well, then we could easily get confused by some of the things that happen here and take descriptive things as prescriptive things for us and be drawing some wrong conclusions. Now, let me give you an application here of living out of identity. What does it look like to live out of identity? The Gospel of Luke is a story of the life and destiny of Jesus. The book of Acts continues the story of Jesus by documenting the legacy of Jesus, what happened after his life as a result of his life. That is the formation and initial development of the ecclesia. The starting point of both the destiny and legacy of Jesus was his identity as the Christ, the son of the living God. Based on this identity, Jesus declared his destiny to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world and his legacy to build his ecclesia. Clarity, therefore, on his personal identity was the predicate for clarity on his destiny and legacy, and so it is with us. This means that the similar expression of one's identity is one's relationship with one's creator. And arguably, in a fallen world, the greatest test of one's relationship with one's creator is the quality of one's character. This is the key here. Jesus had impeccable character, character, which is a very high standard, but he is the prototype. And we can't let the standard, the high standard, block us or stop us. His clarity on his identity led to clarity on his destiny and legacy. For mere mortals like us who labor under total depravity, growing in character is a process, many times a lengthful, lengthy, painful process. The foundation for developing godly character is humility, 
that enables us to truly acknowledge our creator as Lord of our lives. Though the innate bias of each, each one of us is to be totally depraved and therefore biased to be independent of God and therefore to live in pride and arrogance, thinking that we created ourselves and we are the master of our destiny and our fate and we can decide what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, we must resist this inclination. We must deny our pride and independence, and we must deny, adopt a humble attitude towards God. This is the only way to get to clarity about our identity. And as we grow in our character, grow, grow in humility, we will gain clarity. And as we gain that clarity about who we are, then we will gain clarity about why we're here and what our legacy is to be. Christ was very humble and therefore very clear on his identity and consequently clear on his destiny and legacy. And for him, everything in his life was preparatory for his ultimate destiny as the vicarious atoning sacrifice for the sin of mankind. And since his ascension, his legacy has been to build his ecclesia and he is building it, notwithstanding all the defaults or the defects and the problems of the ecclesia today, Christ's ecclesia is strong and growing, and it, even though it may be hard for us to see it. Now, for us mere mortals who labor under the total depravity, the problem of total depravity, character development is absolutely the linchpin. We have to grow up in Christ. Anytime you see someone unclear about their identity, about their, about their destiny and their legacy, you see somebody that's unclear and immature in their character development. They have to grow up. This is where you, where you work. You wanna help something get to clarity, get somebody get to clarity on identity, destiny and legacy, help them grow up. That's what they have to do. Character development is absolutely the key. Until that happens, they will just muddle through life with confusion and they'll be lost. Now I wanna illustrate this with a very simple illustration and not necessarily a, a profound illustration, but I think it's an interesting way to illustrate it. And that is to look at professional golfer, Tiger Woods. He's been in the news recently. And so that kind of inspired me to think about him in light of this. From 1997 to 2008, Tiger was the most prolific professional golfer in the world. Perhaps one of the most arrogant as well. After the 2008 season, Tiger began to suffer numerous physical maladies that led to multiple surgeries, including a back fusion. And if you know what a back fusion is, you know how serious that is. There were many times when he didn't know if he would walk again, much less ever play golf again. Compounding these physical issues was a pattern of wanton immorality that led to a divorce. And that pattern had been going on long before he started having his physical issues. It was just revealed during this time, and that led to a divorce. And eventually, to the physical issues also led to an arrest for DUI. So he had a criminal record, a divorce, and all kinds of physical issues, all kinds of challenges in his life. Now, for most people, that would have just crippled them. That would have been it. Their life would have been over. They never would have been able to come out of that. That would they've been a tailspin. And if if Tiger had stayed in his arrogance, that's where he would have gone. Instead, by the grace of God, some way, he humbled himself. And as he did, he began to get very committed to a disciplined life in every way. 
He's gotten help for his sexual addiction. He's gotten able help for his physical problems. He's gotten help for his whatever caused the DUI's drug addiction he had. He's gotten help on every front and he's humbled himself. He's submitted to these people helping him and he has allowed them to teach him. And this is the reason he's begun to grow and mature. And as a result, he did something that very few people ever thought he would ever do. He got back to playing golf and not only got back to playing golf, he got to back to playing very good golf, elite golf. And that was demonstrated in April of 2019 when he won the prestigious Masters Golf Tournament, one of the truly benchmark tournaments in professional golf worldwide. Tiger ended his victory drought. He had been, had been drought basically without a major victory since 2008, 11-year drought. He ended it in April 2019. And I would submit to you, it's because he, a lot of character development happened in the last few years that enabled him to really move forward and realize much of his potential. The new, more mature Tiger developed into a disciplined, committed, focused, hardworking, tenacious, and dedicated but humble person. He even became more approachable and kinder to people. Arrogance was replaced by humility, and he gained a glimpse at his mortality. And as you get a glimpse of your mortality, that will humble you. And you have a choice. You can either continue in your arrogance, or you can submit and humble yourself. If you humble yourself, you have an opportunity to begin to grow, even if you don't know the Lord. Now, that's an important point. I don't know that what his spiritual state is. There's some reports that attribute his maturity to newfound success and newfound success to his mother's Buddhism. I don't know. Uh, I have an article that suggests that. Interestingly, Buddhism uh, is something that developed in about the third or fourth century BC out of Hinduism. Uh, and it was reacting to Hinduism's lack of high moral standards. So Buddhism has high, very high moral standards. They have what's called the Eightfold Path. And as you look at the Eightfold Path, you say, my goodness, this sounds very Christian. It sounds like they got these things from Christianity. And indeed, that I think that's what's happened. And so Tiger developed under Christian influence, even though it may have been labeled Buddhism. And there is common grace for us when we obey the truth of God's word, even if we don't are not fully aligned with God, there is grace when we obey. And so God, I think he enjoyed through common grace some efficacy to be able to realize some of his potential. Whatever the case, Tiger's return to excellence in his profession seems to be connected to biblical character development, however it happened, even if it's just very rudimentary. And I would suggest it was very rudimentary, far from what it can be or could be and what it should be in any real true Christian which means there's still a lot more for him to realize if he really profoundly embraced Christ and grew up in Christ. So that's, that's a great picture for all of us. Even the, the pagans can enjoy some of the blessings of clarity on their identity and destiny and legacy if they just begin to obey scripture. It makes you wonder how much the professing Christian world really embraces the truth of the word of God. Because it looks like there's some of the pagans that are doing it better than we are, which maybe this is an example of the rocks crying out. Remember when Jesus went to Jerusalem for the last time and his disciples are praising him and the Pharisees, the religious leaders told him, tell your disciples to stop praising you 
Jesus said, if they don't praise me, the rocks cry out. Well, I think the principle is that if we Christians don't live out the reality of finding our identity and discovering our destiny and identifying our legacy and living congruent with the purpose of God for our life, if we don't do that through godly character development, guess what? God will raise up pagans to illustrate it for us. And maybe that's what Tiger is, is an illustration to really embarrass us Christians to realize how weak and ineffective we are because here's a pagan that's doing it better than we're doing it. I've seen no evidence that Tiger's profoundly clear on his identity, but he has gained some clarity over the past decade and enjoyed the fruit of that clarity. If frail humans like Tiger humble themselves, they can gain some clarity on their identity as mortal beings and achieve a level of excellence in this life. But there is more. Imagine the potential that could be released if one robustly embraced one's identity as a son or daughter of the Most High God, as Jesus did. The excellent that one could achieve in whatever God's called you to do would be truly stellar. The way forward is to follow Jesus, seek to know him and mature in him so that we can gain clarity on our identity that will lead to clarity on our destiny and legacy. May the Lord grant us all grace for this journey and therefore enable us to fully realize our divinely ordained potential. This is real success. May the Lord grant us that grace in Jesus' name.